Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Father, we consider it such a joy and privilege to lift our voices in worship today, joining the chorus of angels that announced your birth on that morning some two millennia ago. That night, Lord, we thank you, God, for what you have done in and through history, the mighty power of the Almighty God who was and is and is to come for Him and through Him and to Him are all things, has ordained that salvation visit our households, our hearts, because Christ was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life. His righteousness upon our repentance and faith is credited to our account. He did not stay in the grave, but declared victory over the same and our sin upon His resurrection. We worship our risen Lord this morning as we do every time we gather, celebrating His power, His glory, the fact that He has declared Himself the victor over every last enemy. We thank You, Lord, for every occasion to remember and to proclaim what You have done. You have given us this morning, Lord Jesus, to look into Your Word as we turn our attention to the infallible truths there retained for us. Open our minds to comprehend Let our heart resonate with the joy that should fill our soul and our being as we, Lord, as we consider the great truth of your holy word. And Lord, equip us to be foot soldiers, bringing the news of the gospel, Lord, heralding the great champion of our faith, Jesus Christ, beyond this place. We thank you for what you have prepared. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would use the un. An unlikely vessel, Lord Jesus, unworthy to bring this word today, and that you would sanctify our otherwise hard hearts and ears, so that we might, Lord Jesus, in the proclaiming and the hearing of the word, be transformed by the same. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise God. What a great privilege, even on this cold morning, to open up the scriptures together It is so worth it to make the effort to gather, to stir one another up to love and good works, and to set our minds upon the truths that never change. Let's do so this morning by turning in our scriptures to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, 57 through 68 will be our primary passage this morning under the title, Institutionalized Blasphemy. Institutionalized Blasphemy. The title comes from the circumstances in the gospel where the court of Caiaphas, the high priest, is used as a tool in the hand of the nefarious forces who had set their face against Christ and as enemies of God plotted the destruction of the Messiah. Let me say, as you're turning there to Matthew 26, in a moment I'll ask you to stand for the reading of the Word. Let me just say something else by way of introduction. On our combined service or our Christmas service that we did as an outreach to the community, I preached out of the book of Colossians. In chapter 1, there's that glorious passage, one of the typical prologues in Scripture that highlight the glory of Christ. And it struck me in preparation for that message that there were two aspects of Christ's glory that were visible, that were in view in that section of Scripture. I believe verses 15 through 20 in Colossians 1. The first aspect of Christ's glory was that which He retained pre-incarnately, if you will. The glory that Christ had before He entered His creation and was born of woman. The second category of Christ's glory was that which He secured by the Incarnation. The glory that He demonstrated and added to Himself, if it could be said, as a result of Christ being born, coming into this creation, taking on 
the form of a servant, uh, taking on flesh. And then today, in line with this same theme, we see the actual acts in the incarnation that secured this glorious, uh, amazing pedigree and uh, fame for our Lord, even in His going to the cross, enduring the scourging and the mockery and the blasphemy from the naysayers, and as He does so, taking the cup of God's wrath to His lips for you and for me. So today's theme fits well, I feel, into what we've been considering lately. And I'll remind you as well, last week's message in Psalm 64, Mark read from Psalm 64 earlier in our service, and the theme there is the words of the naysayers, the wicked, versus the Word of God. That's a great psalm to illustrate in poetically the actual circumstances of what is going on here in this institutionalized blasphemy and this unjust trial of Christ in Matthew 26. So with your Bible open there, stand with me if you're able, and let us, out of reverence for the Scriptures, follow along as I read verses 57 through 68. Again, Matthew 26. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it these men testify against you? 63. But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Verse 67, Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? This is the word of God. You may be seated. Turn with me, if you would, in your scriptures, in anticipation of a theme that we see throughout all of the passion of Jesus Christ in the book of John. I believe we're in chapter 11, and I I just want to touch on a brief note in the text in a moment that helps us to see the power of God and His sovereignty in spite of these, what would appear on the surface, tragic events. John 11, 49 through 52. Let me give you a few words of introduction before we turn there. The significance of the events that we read today in our text is underscored in many ways throughout the Word of God. It's underscored in prophecy of old, underscored in parallel accounts throughout the text of the Gospels. It's underscored by events that happen miraculously that attend the way of Jesus, self-disclosure of His own Messiah, uh, of His own uh, glory as Messiah throughout the Gospels right up until the end. All of these aspects and and all of these uh, details in the record 
underscore the many ways how these events are significant. But perhaps the most, uh, the easiest one to look at to see how important this uh, trial of Jesus was was to simply observe the frequency with which it is recorded in the Gospels. That is to say, all the Gospels record Jesus standing before Caiaphas on the unjust trial. They're seeking to condemn him and looking for false witnesses to put him away. These records are found in Mark 14, 53 through 72, Luke 22, 54 through 71, John 18, 13 through 27. To the skeptical unbeliever, they might look to the parallel accounts and try to find some contradictions. But uh, nothing could be farther from the truth. As you explore the text, in their context, what you find is parallel accounts that add additional glorious perspective to the events that are going on here. And as you read, as you can throughout the Gospels, these parallel accounts, you see a sort of three-dimensional, multi-perspectival, if you will, view of the significance of the events that Jesus is living out as part and parcel of, to the gospel. Speaking of John's record, a prophetic detail governing this event in our text today and summarizing its meaning in a powerful nutshell is recorded in John eleven forty nine through 52. Listen to these stunning words. But one of them, Caiaphas, you recognize that name, that's the high priest, the That figures as a character in our text today. One of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Now, uh, just pausing for a moment, notice that this is another example or another record of a plot to kill Jesus that was inspired when the leaders of the day saw him as a threat because of some marvelous works that he had done. In this case, he had raised Lazarus from the dead. We can't suffer one among us who can raise the dead. What would that mean? It would turn our whole world upside down. It would certainly dethrone our authority. And so in the twisted irony and wickedness of their hearts, they determined to kill the man who had the power to raise others from the dead. Leaving open the question, can he not raise himself? That question will be answered in due course. Nevertheless, in spite of his wickedness and rebellion, Caiaphas is instructing this cabal that is plotting Jesus' death. He's trying to provide some direction and some wisdom, if you will, as they move forward with their plans. He ends up inadvertently prophesying. He says again, You know nothing at all, verse 50, Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Again, Caiaphas says, prophesying the gospel inadvertently, it is better for you that one man should die for the people than the whole nation should perish. This is a man that hates Christ and is motivated to gather all the wicked forces he can to destroy this man. Yet, he has said words that have never been truer. This was God's plan to ransom and redeem all of his people. Verse 51, he did not say this of his own accord. Who moved upon Caiaphas thus to speak this way? Obviously, it was the Holy Spirit, a power greater than him. It says, But being high priest that year, he, Caiaphas, prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not the nation only, he used the term the people, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Absolutely stunning. 
As we look at details like this in the greater gospel record, we see here that Caiaphas, the high priest, and his profession of prophecy, in spite of himself, this high priest that now is residing over this ad hoc uh, trial, had inadvertently spoken with stunning gospel clarity, proclaiming God's sovereignty when he declared, it is better for you that one man should die for the people. This detail sets the tone for the entire passion of Jesus Christ that is unfolding in the Gospel of Matthew in our study and series. His enemies, that is Christ's enemies, were a tool in the hand of the Father to strike the shepherd. Notice in our text again a verse that has preceded our text today, verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, again quoting Zechariah 13:7, to the disciples, about the sovereign hand of God in these events. He said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. This trial is a precursor to the striking of the shepherd, the shepherd being Christ. And in fact, at the end, we see this, uh, this prophecy coming true in part when the crowds and those that are involved with this ad hoc legal procedure spit strike and slap him buffet him with their blows it is uh as we see this in the text this detail sets the tone for the entire passion of of the christ where these uh the enemies of christ were tools in the hands of the father to in fact make atonement to provide final and full and merciful sacrifice and atonement redemption for his people. The momentary scattering of the sheep, listen, will soon give way because of these events to the great ingatherings of history that now uh, the price of salvation has paid for. Here we see there's a, a temporal prophecy that when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will be scattered in verse 31. Verse 56, this begins to be fulfilled, and we see it even in Peter keeping his distance from Christ in our text today. But in 56 it says, But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. The shepherd, the striking hand of God the Father, was coming down upon the shepherd. The sheep were scattering at this time. But this was a precursor to the ingathering of the gospel. More sheep would be gathered into the sheepfold than anyone could ever imagine, even as Caiaphas inadvertently prophesied, not only from the Jews, but from the Gentiles, from every nation, every tribe, and tongue. These proceedings that we read of today were laying the groundwork for that to take place. These great ingatherings of history were possible because, became possible because the price of salvation was paid in Christ's own blood. Nevertheless, even in light of this, it was still sin just the same, proving to us that God in His magnificent providence and sovereignty can use the wickedness of man to His great gospel advantage. Only God can do something like this. In Luke's account, he makes this clear in chapter twenty-two, sixty-five. He says of this entire proceeding, that it was the height of institutional blasphemy. Caiaphas was supposed to be the high priest that would point the way. He would typify who the great high priest would be, Jesus himself. Caiaphas, the man in that position, when the Messiah came, did not recognize the high priest of all high priests as Hebrews identifies him. Shame on Caiaphas. Caiaphas was an office 
in his office and as an officer was ultimately commissioned by God, as were the elders and those who were involved in this plot to kill Christ. They were ultimately commissioned by God as his deacons, as his ministers of justice, and they were abusing their privilege. They were manipulating the people. They were corrupting the court. They were discrediting themselves. They were legislating against the Lord. They were co-opting the institutions of social order that were meant to glorify God and using them to stir up a systemic rebellion against God Himself. This happens yet today. Great institutional blasphemy is commonplace when a people turns its back on the root and order and foundation. Blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord, the Scripture tells us. Sin is a great reproach, on the other hand, to the people. This tale of institutional blasphemy always ends in reckoning of two kinds, either repentance or judgment. And we see this in the text as well. Here's a heading for some lessons from the record of Jesus' unjust trial. Let us note three this morning. Lessons from the record of Jesus' unjust trial. First of all, let us notice the characters in proximity to Christ. We mentioned Caiaphas and others. Let's also take note of Peter, a representative disciple. And let's see how this environment is shaped in this setting and through these proceedings. Secondly, let's notice the power of words, presumed and proven. Caiaphas and the rulers, the ruling elite of that day, they presumed that their words had a certain power and authority. They're acting with a whole lot of pride and hubris and condemning through these proceedings uh, Jesus Christ. He himself, as the Lord of glory, the power of his words would prove ultimately sovereign over the false words, the false accusations that condemned him. We see this in due course. And finally, the potent cup is lifted. This is a cup of God's wrath prepared, and Christ is taking again, as we've noted before, several more sips of the sufferings prepared for him that he would endure on our behalf so that the justice of God might be satisfied for our sins. Lessons in the record. First, let's consider more closely characters in proximity to Christ. Notice, first of all, in our text today, there is a scene change. Verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders had gathered. This should remind you of earlier in the chapter in verse 3. Turn back a page or so. Jesus had prophesied. Uh, He had finished all these sayings. He had said to his disciples, You know that after two days a Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Christ had prophesied this multiple times, as we've noted in the record. Even as he is speaking, notice what's happening in verse 3. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered where? In the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. They were plotting and scheming to arrest Jesus, to accost him in the night. We see this happening with the betrayal of Judas and his kiss. Now we've seen Jesus in handcuffs, as it were, and this rabid crowd with clubs and swords that have rallied together in a, a blind rage. And now they have led him where? They've led him to the place we just read of. They seized Jesus, led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders had gathered. They are at the house or the palace, the residence of Caiaphas, the high priest. 
This is an important detail in the text. The location is significant. It ties these unfolding events uh, from the plotting elite in chapter, er, uh, the same chapter in verses 3 and 5 to this ad hoc trial. It does not take place according to any measure of civil or orchestrated decorum. In other words, things are happening not in a way in accordance with God's law, but God's word and will are being violated at every turn in these events. The high priest should know better than on an impulse hold an ad hoc trial at his own house. He knew better if he read the law not to tear his robes as he later does. We can see this in context. Seeking false witness was the height of the breaking of the Ten Commandments. Do we not recall thou shalt not bear false witness? Can you get more any can you get any more blatantly lawless than these events that are taking place? And this happens in this scene where this trial is taking place, this quote unquote trial at the palace of Caiaphas the high priest. Even the layout of the property serves to illustrate the demeanor of the people to Christ. There's a courtyard and there's some distance There's different stages or different areas on the blueprint of this property, if you will, and the different characters uh, take their places accordingly. And we see this especially when Peter decides to keep his distance. Continuing in our text, verse 58. And Peter was following him, meaning following Christ, at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. So you see him holding back, do you not? And then... And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Notice Peter's, uh, notice the sort of uh, unspoken body language, if you will, and actions of Peter and what they say about the great conflict that must be going on in his heart. Peter had had some disagreements with Christ. For instance, Jesus has said, after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee All of you, though, will be scattered. Peter had answered him, verse 33, Though they fall away, because of you I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Peter seeks to defy some of these words that Christ proclaims that even he, Peter, will lose his loyalty to Christ out of fear for his own life. Peter tries to defy these words, when he takes up a sword and swings it against the high priest's servant, cutting off his ear. We later find that it is healed. Peter has, in a hasty vow, said all the way back in chapter 16, I believe, that he would never leave the Lord, that he would sooner die than desert or deny his Lord and his God. And in all these cases, (coughs) we see that personal resolve and trusting your own heart and resolutions is not enough to stay faithful to Christ. Peter's heart needed to be changed. And Peter at this time, following Christ at a distance, demonstrated that there was an inner conflict this representative disciple was wearing on his sleeve. This will feature more prominently in the next passage and its blatant in his blatant denials. Verses 69 through 75 were three times over Peter denies his Lord. But here, in this passage, Peter's body language and proximity to Christ is also telling, it is also telling, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
let us ask ourselves the question, do we find in our own lives that we are tempted sometimes because of the price that is required to follow Christ at a distance? Are there times where we lag behind, where we know He is calling us to go in denial of self, in taking up our cross and following Him? What if there is a great price to pay? There were many who wanted to follow Christ, and there were crowds that lauded Him when He was feeding the 5,000. It no doubt gave them a certain feeling of invincibility. If we hitch our wagon to this army tank, no one is going to destroy us. After all, a man who can raise the dead and feed thousands will protect us from any want or need or destruction or fear in the future, will he not? And so when they were thinking along these terms, Christ and following him was a very popular thing to do indeed. But when Christ calls us, his true believers, his true children to follow him, it goes far beyond this sort of fair-weather association and friendship. He calls us to suffer with Him. He calls us to pay a high price, to join in, as Paul has said, the fellowship of His sufferings. Peter and company were called to do so, to join in the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ, and they were hesitant to do so. They were keeping their distance. What was missing in their heart and in their life? Why were they failing this test of loyalty? I submit to you that the incarnation and the full work of Christ would procure in time the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God that would transform these disciples from fair-weather boldness to consistent, uh, to consistent, faithful following of Christ no matter the cost. Peter was willing to go to prison even be executed and persecuted and any number of hardships on account of Christ after he received a changed heart via the Holy Spirit and his indwelling. Finally, the characters in proximity to Christ, it is illustrative as we look at those who are seeking false testimony. It says in verse 59, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. So the leaders were exploiting their influence this is where the institutionalized blasphemy is so, uh, is so despicably portrayed. Those who were called to lead the people were taking advantage of their position to influence them to, toward wickedness. They were exploiting their influence and position, seeking through their interaction with the crowds to destroy Christ. They wanted people who had come forward to give what sounded like a good credible testimony that would be evidence they could use to condemn him. In this time, during this time, they were, they were recruiting foot soldiers for their ends. They were stirring up the crowd, manipulating them into a frenzy, and causing them in their God-hating efforts to join them in their quest to deny the reality of their own sin, to deny the identity of Christ, to deny the word of the prophets that went before, the testimony of the word become flesh, to deny God's plan, this is what they were seeking to do. But fortunately, in the sovereignty of God, their efforts would be thwarted. And in fact, they would be a tool in His hand. But we see this interaction between the crowds happening with the high priests in proximity to Christ at this time. You can almost see it, can't you? Jesus is there, bound, standing before a group of self-serving uh, self-serving leaders of the day, and then the masses are filling up and chanting and hollering and calling for his death. 
shouting here, shouting there. I saw them do this, I saw them do that. Seldom do their testimonies agree. The cacophony and the chaos rises to a din several times. The high priest has to call for order in the court as we imagine the scene before us. And then in the distance, those who could testify to the character of Christ more than any other humans that walked with them, Peter and company, the scattered sheep, were keeping their mouths shut, were staying a safe proximity away from him because they didn't know what was going on and they were captivated by fear. Second lesson in the record of Jesus' unjust trial, the power of words presumed and proven. Mark read in Psalm 64 how every conflict, which we covered last week, can be boiled down to a conflict of ideas, words, worldviews, truth claims. David is frightful. He is feeling the pain and the pressure and the anxiety of the wicked ones that are surrounding him. And more than their physical swords and spears, what does he fear? What is the cause for concern? Verse 3, those who wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows, shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly and without fear. This was certainly the attitude, and this is certainly a messianic prophecy of the very events that are going on in our text today. They, you could plug in Caiaphas, the elders, and all the crowd who shared their sentiments, they hold fast to their evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly. Remember, they caught him in the night. His so-called follower, disciple, Judas, betrayed him with a kiss. They laid the snares secretly, and then they cinched it tight, and they caught Christ thinking, who can see them? They search out injustice, saying, we have accomplished a diligent search for the inward mind and heart of man are deep. But notice the hopeful shift and contrast in Psalm 64. And signaled by the conjunction but in verse 7. But God shoots His arrows at them. They are wounded suddenly. They are brought to ruin with their own tongues turned against them. All who see them will wag their heads. Then all mankind fears. They tell what God has brought about and ponder what He has done. Our text today, Jesus before Caiaphas, His unjust trial, fits well into the first half of Psalm 64. But as the events continue to unfold in the gospel, they fit extremely well in the second half of Psalm 64. The power of the presumed words of Caiaphas and the other leaders are absolutely obliterated and destroyed by the proven power of Christ's words in due course. Notice, first of all, in 59 through 62, the miscellaneous accusations against Christ. What a chaotic scene as we read. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. Uh, this entire trial was illegitimate. It was a mistrial. It should have been thrown out. Anyone who knew anything about the legal code of the Scriptures, which is the foundation of all true ethics, should have been able to draw that determination. I'll prove this in a moment from Leviticus 19, but see how the circumstances continue to unfold. Verse 60, but they found none. So they're seeking false testimony. They found none, though many witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and, one, and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Scraping the bottom of the barrel for any excuse to condemn Christ. And in spite of all the false testimonies that do not agree, and all the chaotic 
you know, cries from the crowd that don't make sense and are in, intrinsically self-refuting, the high priest grabs on to the best accusation that he can and then runs with it. Notice the great lawlessness and the great sinfulness that is metastasizing in these events. When we consider that Christ was the perfect law keeper, His righteousness is dramatically juxtaposed in contrast to the utter lawlessness of the people around Him. This was one of those events where the wickedness and the depravity of the human heart comes to the surface, proving the words of Scripture that all are conceived in wickedness. There is none righteous, no, not one. The poison of asps is under their tongue. They seek all day long to do evil against the Lord of glory. To identify this evil by the righteous standard of Christ or of God's word, let us turn back to Leviticus 19, verse 15 through 18. And then we see what the high, the high priest malfeasance in greater clarity, given these words. Listen, you shall do no justice in court. Could it be more clear than that? I mean, these guys, Caiaphas and company, they should have had the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, memorized. The Pentateuch. Uh, They should have had it down pat. It was their job to understand, to retain, to rightly adjudicate, and to apply the law of God. Verse 15 of Leviticus 19 says, You shall do no injustice in court. And the whole reason for this kangaroo trial that we read of in Matthew 26 is to find false witness and testimony against Christ. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Was this the example of the role that these magistrates were supposed to be uh, fulfilling in their condemnation of Christ? No, this was institutionalized blasphemy. The last thing from righteousness, judging their neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. That's exactly what was fielded and searched for and solicited in this exchange. Does anyone have slander that sounds plausible against Jesus? Hey, bring it forward. We want to hear it. We will count that against him. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. And least of all, when your neighbor is the Messiah, the eternal Lord of glory, born of woman, incarnate in the flesh, perfect, sinless. And you are there testifying against your neighbor who in this case, this singular case, is Christ the Lord. Verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. And that's exactly what these people were doing. They were incurring sin because of Christ. Later in the gospel, they would cry unanimously, his blood be on us and our children. Remember what I said? That these tales always end in reckoning. Institutional blasphemy. Codified rebellion. Setting your face against the purposes of God. Doubling down in your wickedness. Identifying with your sin. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. Verse 18 of Leviticus 19. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. We're so familiar with those words. Love your neighbor as yourself. Consider how that law was broken so egregiously in our text today. These people could not love Jesus Christ, who came (coughs) setting aside in veiled form 
for a time his glory and divinity that or his glory that he rightly secured and had retained in eternity past becoming a servant denying himself creature comforts the son of man having no place to lay his head who reaches out to the destitute lost and broken providing hope and healing through his touch and through the words of the gospel of the kingdom and this their neighbor Christ himself in flesh they were not loving as themselves but instead they were condemning him unjustly does this happen today do people still speak false testimony about Christ are people still is there institutional blasphemy in our experience today in this nation and our culture do people look for excuses to deny the self-attesting Christ? Jesus disclosed who he was, and it is inarguable the power, the glory, the divinity that he retained, proclaimed, and stood upon. We see it in this text. We see it throughout the text of Scripture. Yet what do people do today? They're interested in false testimony about Christ. Oh, I don't really believe in the historical Jesus. Jesus is really just a universal religious concept that people in all different times and places, you know, find something to identify with. He's no more than, you know, what uh, Muhammad would be to the Islamists. He's no more than what Siddhartha would be to the Buddhists and so on and so forth. People try to reduce Christ and to make fun of him and blaspheme him by associating him with the false testimony of academics and otherwise and philosophers that would seek to throw Christ and his truth claims, and his authority, and glory, and power, and sovereignty under the bus of their own intelligence. It will never happen. People seek for false testimony about Christ by denying the validity, and the power, the sufficiency, and the clarity of Scripture. They say, oh, it's just a book written by men. They don't recognize its unique and self-attesting glory and authority. They don't see it in the singular category that it inarguably is, set apart from all other works of human thought in history. This is, after all, a word compiled and inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. Yet, modern man in his sinful rebellion and his systemic war against the Lord ever since Eden is more interested in false testimony than he is in the revelation of God incarnate here to dwell, God in flesh. These miscellaneous accusations uh, say as much in the text. But they are not foreign today. They are still part and parcel to the sinfulness that yet plagues our culture. It is important that we stand with Christ, suffer with Him the way the disciples didn't, so that they can see the testimony of His truth, even in a day where it is hated. Notice, secondly, the power of words presumed, and then the power of words proven. And this is our, this is, there's some irony here. The power of God's word is actually proven in the silence of Jesus. I don't think we can understand what a test and trial this would be for Christ. After all, in John, it records that there is a moment when the ad hoc band that comes, the motley crew, to destroy him, to seize him, and to carry him away, they're blown back by his power. And for a brief moment, they get a window into who they are messing with. And how foolish, then, to get back up rub the bewilderment out of your eyes, and not even be curious about what just happened. You were trying to accost and arrest the Lord of glory. You idiot! Put down your sword. Put down your club. Go home! And better yet, cry at His feet uh, in repentance and faith and ask that He would be merciful to you and forgive you. They didn't do this type of thing. There was another moment in our text today, if 
We back up a few verses that demonstrates Christ's power to save himself. Do you think, verse 53, that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? I don't know if this is an accurate way to describe it, but I can see in the heavenlies in my imaginary mind's eye all of the forces pent up behind the word of God saying, stop, stop, ready to intervene on the Messiah's behalf, on Christ's behalf. All they need is just God to lift his finger and say, go. And those, and we see, as we've mentioned recently, 185,000 Assyrians killed by the angel of the Lord single-handedly overnight. You think that this band of miscreants is any match for the power of God and his legions of celestial warriors? Of course not. In spite of all this, the power that Christ retained, what did he do? He remained silent. Why did he remain silent? Isaiah 53 tells us, in his silence, he was proving the word of God. The term silence indicates he did not protest, He did not ultimately defend himself, though he did speak on his behalf. What is happening here is Christ is willingly going to the slaughter. He is not using the the, uh, powerful prerogative he has as the creator of all these creatures in the first place to utterly destroy them for their heinous act of blasphemy. Why did he do this? Because it was prophesied of him of old in the word of God which never fails that he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Isaiah 53, 7, And he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. These words were proven as Christ restrained himself and the crowds boiled over in a passionate rage. Verse 9, they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. The power of God's word was being fulfilled even in Christ's response of silence before these false accusations. Thirdly, the high priest finally binds him to an oath. And this is the adjournment that we see Verse 60, having found none, though many false witnesses came forward, at last two came forward and said, I'm able to this and, and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God, to rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up, verse 62, and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Jesus remained silent. Verse 63, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you. That is to say, in the legal terms of this proceeding, I bind you by my authority in this court (coughs) to an oath to answer the following question. I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, the uh, background for this act of uh, legal procedure, act and legal procedure, goes all the way back again to the law. In Leviticus, for instance, uh, chapter 5, we see provisions made for this kind of thing. If anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, so just like 
the high priest said, I adjure you, I compel you, I force you by oath to respond. If anyone sins and that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. Now, this verse is powerful. Do you see that if an adjuration is brought against someone on trial under the law of God, he is bound by the law of God to speak. Otherwise, he shall bear his iniquity. He cannot utter falsehood. A falsehood, that would be perjury. He cannot, uh, he cannot plead the fifth, as it were, like our legal system has. That would be considered, uh, then he would actually bear the weight of the accusation. The incredible law-keeping of Christ went to such a great extent that even in this trial, which was illegitimate by so many measures, Christ still honored God's law in answering the high priest. He was not compelled by the authority, mind you, of Caiaphas. Caiaphas' authority, as far as he personally, individually was concerned, was totally illegitimate. He had disqualified himself to be a legitimate high priest. However, the office that God had ordained was according to His holy word. And it went all the way back to the book of Leviticus. And Christ Himself knew that when He was adjured to speak, that He would, in deference to His Lord, uh, the Father, to His Father, He would speak. And so He answers. Jesus responds. Uh, This is amazing indeed, verse 64. Jesus said to Him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. You remember the question is, tell us if you are Christ, the Son of God. When Jesus hears this question, He answers, you have said so, but I tell you, and then He adds to the claim, His messianic claim, not just the affirmative to the adjuration, if He was or was not Christ, the Son of God, but in fact what that implied and entailed. Not only am I, that is to say, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, the Anointed One, but from now on you will see the Son of Man, meaning Himself, seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. This was an amazing doubling down and adding to the claim. You know, if He had just answered in the affirmative, it would have been enough in the minds and hearts of those gathered like Caiaphas to condemn Him, but He adds more to it. This is interesting. When you consider the content of a direct answer, it is invariably influenced to some degree by the questioner. In other words, when someone asks you a question, the answer is in some way bound, you know, in some part bound to the premise and the presumption of the questioner. So simply to say yes would basically assume uh, in your response that Caiaphas knew what it meant to be. Or had an understanding of what it entailed to be Christ, the Son of God. Jesus granted him no such thing. And he answered, therefore, differently. Not only did he answer affirmative, but he went on. Jesus' answer, therefore, uh, rested not on a mere affirmative, but goes much farther to proclaim what his Messiahship truly implies. In Acts 7.56, the fulfillment of Jesus' words is evident in the vision and testimony of Stephen at his martyrdom, when he sees Christ and proclaims his position, even as Christ had prophesied in our text today. Verse 54, 
similar circumstances in some ways. But see the glorious proclamation they give way to. Now when they had heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Again, the wicked leaders conspiring to, to kill, this time the followers of Christ, and one named Stephen. Stephen, they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus. Where? Standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. In less than a generation, for the crimes against the Lord and his followers, this entire contingency of public leaders would be destroyed with the temple at A.D. 70. Every tale of institutional blasphemy ends in a reckoning. If not repentance, destruction. That is what happened. Jesus was prophesying that from now on, meaning that these events would initiate His assumption of authority beyond their wildest imaginations, and He would exercise the same historically and immediately in the events that would follow. A fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7, as we've remarked a number of times before, where the Son of Man arrives before the Ancient of Days, and His coming is before the Father, and He receives a kingdom. And myriads of angels in this true court of glory stand at His beck and call and command. And He is given the rule and reign and sovereignty over all the nations of the earth. Not only, Christ says, am I the Son of God, the Christ, Messiah, the anointed one. But from now on, you will see me seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. Finally, and more briefly this morning, in these events, we see the potent cup lifted. The poison cup, if you will. The children's book written by R.C. Sproul comes to my mind. The Prince and the Poison Cup, I believe, is the title. And it's an analogy to describe what Jesus took on in his passion, his crucifixion, and his sufferings which was a poison cup, if you will, of God's wrath, in order to satisfy the justice that our sin deserved. This reference to cup comes from verse 39. Going a little farther, he, Christ, fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Again, he prayed a second time, verse 42. My Father, this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. So we have in this picture, this metaphor, the cup of God's wrath and His justice, if you will. And we see in these events, that cup is brought to the lips of our Messiah and He begins to drink. We see this as the scene unfolds. The priest tears his robe. Again, another violation of the Old Covenant. Leviticus ten six commands him not to do so. It's technically unlawful for him to do it, but it drove the crowd to violent reaction. So uh, shocking was a priest tearing his robes at this time. We read in verse 65 that it moved the crowd to uh, just complete insane rage. The high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. Accusing him of blasphemy. And then he cries out, What is your judgment? And the mob responds, he deserves death. This mob rule calling out their judgment in the heat of the moment with all the rage and sin of men's depravity boiling over in this moment of utter 
and palpable rebellion against the law of God. And they're spitting and striking and slapping him, we read in verse 67. In Numbers 12, 14, the act of spitting was a horrific uh, sign of distance, of cutting off, of putting someone out, of utter shaming, of saying, you are no longer a part of this community. I spit on your presence. I would sooner have you trodden underfoot than to be in fellowship or close to me. And this act of spitting was the total opposite of what we read in Psalm 2, for instance, kiss the son, lest he be angry in the way. He couldn't find a way to violate the, uh, the Lord any more potently and, than this. Secondly, they struck him. In the Greek, it refers to a buffeting, the fist to the temples. If you ever watched some of those just brutal street fights that some people do for money or fun, I, I don't know why. There must be, you know, maybe after a few times in the head, it affects them in some way. They're hard for me to watch. Just the intensity of a human to human, just buffeting someone in the head, beating them over and over again, until finally their head, like a pinata, wailing back and forth, loses some of its consciousness as they're bewildered. And then there's this slapping action of the open-handed and backhanded motion, presumably across his face, a kind of action reserved for the worst of slave owners, for maybe the worst of slaves. This is the kind of thing that's began to happen in the persecutions, in the blasphemies, and in the violence that was taken out against the Lord. With every strike across our Savior's face of the backhand from one of the crowd or one of the uh, Pharisees or elders, with every buffeting to the temple by those who are whipped up in a rage, with every glob of spit that hung off his beard, with every single one, yours and my sins were being atoned for. This was the cup of God's wrath that he was drinking in part. It would be full and final upon his death, but he was taking the abuse that we deserved for us. This is the potent cup of God lifted to the lips of the one sinless, innocent one on our behalf, our perfect, blameless, spotless, substitute sacrifice. Are we as grateful in closing as we ought that Christ endured this abuse without retaliation? He's absolutely despicable, insidious, shameful, and deranged behavior towards Christ in this incident reminds us all the more of the mercy and grace of our Savior extended to us. Enduring it all without protest, silently, without fighting back, without calling on the legions of angels. Especially, this is so obvious given the alternative demonstrated in his words earlier in the text that he could. He retained the power and authority to summon myriads of angels to defeat his enemies in an instant. They demonstrated this in a brief moment in John when the, his uh, attackers fell back because of the weight of his glory that they could not hold up under. How should we respond as we consider this? Well, Philippians 3, 8 through 11 is as good an answer as any. When Paul thought about his great sin, you remember his confession? He considered himself the chief of sinners and for good reason. When he thought about these things, everything he once counted gain, he counted loss. When he thought about the way his Savior suffered and died for him such that 
his death was sufficient to cover even Paul's heinous sins, he said the following, Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. When we realize the power and weight of what Christ was suffering here, instead of keeping our distance, we, as the Spirit moves upon our hearts, we run to Him. We embrace His death as our key to everlasting life. Embrace Him today. Let us close in prayer. Oh, Father, we are so thankful that the power of these events is recorded for us, Lord Jesus, in (coughs) such a way that the record will never wither or fade. Our experience, our lives, the grass and the trees, and they wither and fail. But your word stands forever and never returns void. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Taking on the form of a servant, humbling himself, veiling for a time his prior glory. We thank you, Jesus, that in that act, you received, if it could be said, more glory still, and you are exalted at the right hand of the Father. We thank you that in that act you endured the justice and wrath that our sin deserved and you took the poison cup of the Father's wrath to your own lips on our account. We thank you that you drunk it down to the dregs so that we might be resurrected. If there are any in this room who have not, through repentance and faith, trusted in you, Jesus, as their Messiah, as their Lord, as the one who intervened, as the perfect sacrifice on their behalf, to wash away their sin, to render them justified, to then sanctify them and to make them, Lord Jesus, an honorable vessel to bring forward your gospel. I pray that you would compel them to repent, place their faith in the only power that saves. We thank you for the power of your word that is proven even in our own lives for those that have repented of our sin. Thank you that you've washed it away. May this season only heighten our appreciation and sharpen our memory of these gospel events, that we may be even more compelled to share them with others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.